0: Um, Now listen, I'm not sure if you realize, but last weekend, while we were off, it was actually a landmark weekend for our church. They say it takes three years from the time you plant a church to establish it and get it to a place where you're on your own, so to speak. I want to take a moment and just thank the Lord, uh, Mercy Church, because last weekend, while we weren't together, was still our three-year anniversary together. Yeah. Praise God. Y'all far beyond just establishing a church, which I'm so thankful for, I believe that the Lord is stirring up a movement among us, and I'm so honored to be a part of it with you. We've seen a great deal of excitement, people coming um, from death to life, getting baptized as a part of our church, and I love that. Uh, But here's what I also know, because of that, um, I know some of you that are here today, especially as we've gotten into the fall, you might be newer to our church, or maybe you've been around here for a little while, but you find yourself either newer or been around for a while, maybe you find yourself this morning in the kind of position of an observer of what's happening here at Mercy. Listen, we believe that discipleship, which means growing into the person God has called you and created you to be, happens not by observing, but through participating. All right, that's, if your desire is for to come in here Sunday morning and to get hope in your life, good, good, God created you for that. You want God to do something fresh in your life. His answer to that is you participating in a messy group of people called the local church. Now, we, the way we say it a lot around here, you'll hear say it from time to time, is discipleship happens in relationships. So here's what we're doing starting today. Today, we're beginning a brand new sermon series that's going to last for six weeks. What we're going to do during those six weeks, <laughs> and the sermon series is going to be called Created. We're going to look at the first three chapters of Genesis the first book of the Bible, which, by the way, is going to be really easy if you're newer to the Bible because you just start at page one, all right? It's going to be really easy for you to find. So here's the deal. If you fit into that category of observer, here's what I want to tell you. Usually it takes about four to six weeks to figure out if a church is for you. Now, You can often figure out in week one if a church is not for you, okay? (laughs) That can sometimes happen. But if you're on the fence and you're like, hey, maybe this is a spot that we might want to, at least I want to know a little bit more about it or we're considering jumping in, it usually takes about four to six weeks to give it a fair shake. So we've kind of built a six-week window for you. You'll get to dive into the three of the arguably most important chapters in the whole Bible so you get to learn how it is that you are designed and what you're created for. And as we're in these three chapters, I want you to read them. I want you to take them in and get to know them. You'll get the Christian message really clearly out of this. And then we're going to say, find some ways to test out participating in community, right? Today, when you leave, you're going to be able to sign up for a community group right through these doors. You will hear more about that at the end of service. Test it out, right? In those community groups, you know what we're going to do? We're going to walk through how we apply Genesis 1 through 3. The same thing we're talking about the weekends, we're talking about in group, easy place for you to start. This Friday night, we've got something called Starting Point, where you can come meet our leaders and figure out and learn why we do what we do and and get to know our leaders and who's who's running this thing. So uh, this is just a great time, that's what I'm trying to get across to you, to move from observing to participating, to get out of uh, what really the Lord wants you to get out of by being a part of a local church. All right, with all that said, get your Bible, open it up, page one. Again, this series is called Created, the first three chapters of the book of Genesis. And over the course of these six weeks, we're going to try and answer one question. What were you created for? That's our question. That's the driving big idea, big question for our whole series. What were you created for? And here's why. This is the most fundamental and important question in all of life. I mean, the Westminster Catechism has been around for hundreds of years. It starts with, what is the chief end of man? That's the first question that it asks. This is like the human question, whether or not you're a Christian in here. It's the big question. What were you created for? And here's the reason why we're spending six weeks on it is, most people don't have an answer for it. They're not sure if they have a purpose. And if they think that, hey, I feel like I should have a purpose. Most people not only don't know what it is, they're not really even sure where to go and look for it. Your life purpose, though, when you know it, What happens? It starts to create self-confidence because, hey, I know who I am, right? So you try and put a label on me, and I can reject it because I know who I am. and know what I'm created for. When you know your life purpose, it creates courage to take risks because you know where you're supposed to be going in life. It helps shape, and it helps you understand who you're supposed to marry because they're going to be going with you that same direction. It helps you to relieve anxiety in big decisions. It helps you know what to spend your free time on, what to spend your money on, who the influences in your life should be. Knowing what you're created for, again, it is the biggest question in life, but here's the deal. In our world right now, one thing that I've picked up on, I think a lot of you have as well, is that we are confusing the idea of purpose, which is what you're created for, with passion, which is what you're excited about. All right, now, let me explain a little bit. Throughout this series, I'm going to show you that when your purpose comes first, what you're created for then your passions can naturally grow out of that in a healthy way because passion is a really good thing. You'll be able to flourish in your passion, but purpose, what you're created for, is the deeper question. It must come first. And if you do not know your purpose, what happens is that your passions, the things that you get excited about, the things that your soul craves, your passions will start to step into that seat and become your purpose. And that creates people who are zealous for any number of things that never satisfy them. Yesterday, y'all, I'm, uh, just to maybe start out a little lighthearted, I'm coaching my youngest daughter's first soccer game, okay? Five girls, one boy on my team, all brand new at soccer, ponytails flying everywhere in this game, okay? So we're in there. The other team has a bunch of like little warriors. They got five boys, one girl. Um, and we are, they're just running around, running our, our they're bashed back and forth. We got one girl who's just taking it to them and everything. But at the end of the day, we lost so bad. Uh, the final score, we, thankfully they don't keep scoring this age, but you know, so, um, the final score would have been at least 20 to nothing. And that's because the other coach pulled back. All right. I'd have to, it was, it's tough. All right. Now. If I let me let me just be a little bit lighthearted but kind of a little bit serious at the same time. If I don't know my purpose in life, I can let my passion, my soul cravings turn me into a wild-eyed soccer dad who will push his four year old to do two to do two a days because we will never be embarrassed like that again. Right? We can do that. And some of y'all are like, that's an exaggeration. Really? I got four kids in sports, baseball, soccer. I've seen dance, gymnastics. I've seen some things. Some of those sidelines, all right? Listen, now, if I do that, she might grow up to be the next Mia Hamm because that's a famous soccer player that is now retired and I show my age, okay? Um, Listen, she might. She's got the tenacity for it. But is that her created purpose? And is my created purpose to live vicariously through my kid and push her like that? And of course, you would respond, you go, no. Well, then my response to you is, okay, what is my created purpose? Because if I don't know it, well, then my life's going to be driven by one passion or another, and usually a series of them over the course of my life. If my soul craves approval at work, I will give my life to my work, and everything else will just be extra, including my family getting the leftovers. If my soul craves approval of friends, high school students, listen to me. If my soul craves the acceptance of others, I'll do whatever it takes to get likes, right? But is that your purpose in life, to get likes? You would respond and tell me, no, of course not. Well, then what is your purpose? Because if you don't know it, those soul cravings will become your purpose, which I believe is the very thing that the great enemy that is laid out in the Bible that still exists today, I believe the enemy that we meet in Genesis, that's what he wants to happen. He wants our passions to become our purpose. He convinced the first humans to follow their passions, their desire to know, be as knowledgeable and as powerful as God, follow their passions instead of their purpose to know and walk with God. And it brought about their destruction. And he's still doing the same thing today. So we're going to spend six weeks answering the question, what's your purpose? What are you created for? Because when you get that fundamental question right, you can make sense of who you are and how you are meant to engage the world around you. That's, that's what we're doing in Genesis. In fact, Genesis, the title, it's just the translation of the first three words, in the beginning. That's all it is. It's just translated Genesis. Our author, Moses is the, Moses, is the guy that led Israel out of slavery, out of Egypt when Israel was bound in slavery there. Now, having left Egypt, he's left all their temples, all their pantheism, their number of gods that are there, that explained the world, that worldview, suppressed Israel's monotheism, that there's one God, and they suppressed that and said, no, 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 the whole world and all everyone in it, this is the, God, the playground of the gods, so to speak. Well, Moses puts forward, now out from that, a clear, definitive understanding of how the world really came to be and what our purpose is in it. So let's jump in. Today we are going to cover two whole verses, all right? I'm going to do my best to try and take us slowly through this, um, but y'all got to tell you I feel a bit like a um, like a tour guide trying to help you see the beauty of Van Gogh's Starry Night, some amazing piece of work. Art historian um, Erwin Panofsky, he said, if you're going to understand beautiful art, you got to take three steps. You got to look, then you got to see. <laughs> you've got to look at it, observe some things. Then you've got to see how everything, what, what all is really happening in the whole picture. Then you've got to think. Look, see, think. And Genesis, especially chapter 1, is kind of like that. Because listen, chapter 1 is this deep, it is a well of deep truth. And yet it's communicated in the form of a narrative, a story so clear that you can tell your children the story. So I implore you, as we get into this, what I would call a majestic, a majestic passage of Scripture study it on your own. Got six weeks that we're in it together. It's only three chapters and it's written in narrative. So it's easy for you to read, study it, spend time looking, seeing, and thinking well about your creative purpose in light of it. All right. Genesis 1, 1. You ready? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. All right, we'll stop here. Um, John Selhammer, one of the greatest Old Testament scholars in the past 100 years, he said of this verse, these seven words are the foundation of all that is to follow in the Bible. Just these seven words. Now, those of you that are doing quick math are like, wait, now listen. Old Testament scholars are baller, and they only count in Hebrew. Okay, so in Hebrew, that's seven words, all right? And we're going to go through them. If this is the foundation of everything that is to follow in the Bible, we're going to go through them, see... Uh, If we can really understand all of that, and if we have time, we'll get to verse 2. You English majors, as you're looking at it, you can identify that the subject of Moses' opening line about the world is who? Yeah, it's okay. This this can be a group participation activity. That's always a, a good thing here. Okay, It's God, and that's our huge and first point today. If you're newer to Mercy, what I try and do from time to time is give you kind of takeaway points from the Scripture. Think of it like the art expert walking you through trying to help you see what van gogh was doing in his in his painting and here's our first point the book of genesis and the rest of the bible is about god listen chapter 1 the name of god elohim it occurs 35 times in chapter 1 moses is trying to make a point god said let there be light and there was light god said let there be plants and there were plants God said, let there be winged creatures, and there were winged creatures. God created every kind of them. God said, this is good, and then God blessed them. God created, God looked at it and approved of it, and then God blessed it as it functioned on the earth. The whole thing, God, 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 the whole thing is about God. And this little truth that might seem so obvious is massively important for understanding the Bible because you can either read the Bible as how God is a part of your story or how you are a part of God's story. And I think it's really healthy for us right here out of the gate to see that we're only given one day out of six in God's creation. If you read the Bible to figure out how God can help you, then you're not looking for your created purpose. And so you're not going to see it. You're looking for how God can help you achieve your passions that you have how can God help me? But that's not what the Bible sets out to do. The Bible from the very first sentence is telling you that the main character of the universe and the main character in your life is God, not you. Y'all, that's a little disorienting. All right, I told you before, it's like when um, Nicholas Copernicus, when he posited the theory that it's not that the um, sun revolves around the earth. But instead, he, he told everyone, it looks like the earth revolves around the sun. And everybody was like, no way. I mean, Martin Luther, John Calvin, the church in general just said, no, this is absurd. This is heresy, everything else. Because it was so hard to think that we're not at the center. That took a long time to adjust with. And so what I'm telling, the reason I bring that up is you might go through your own Copernican revolution when you start to really understand the implications that your life is a part of God's story, not the other way around. I was thinking maybe how could you, how can you kind of turn this into something you could put handles to and work with this week? Maybe a prayer you could pray to help you approach God rightly. So maybe it would sound something like this. And it's just a part of your time praying to God this week as you open up these three chapters. God, you are not a part of my story. I am a part of your story. Maybe that's a part of your time praying to God this week because that's the first clue in figuring out your purpose. Because to, listen, To know what you were created for, you need to know who you were created by. Part of your created purpose is knowing God. So our main goal today in this first sermon in the series is trying to see who is this God who's at the center of everything. So let's talk about who this God is. And we'll start with the phrase, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. Y'all, this just led me to marvel at God this week. The phrase means the beginning of time itself. This isn't just the beginning of earth. This is the beginning of all time. And what we're supposed to see is that in the beginning, God was already there, right? There are a few times today where I'm going to say the phrase, God is, and then I'm going to say something that's like a fill in the blank kind of thing. God is blank. And in doing so, what I'm trying to do is introduce you to God who is, as the Bible claims, the main character of your story. Because if you're going to know what you're created for, you got to know who you're created by. And the first one is that God is eternal. Moses wrote in Psalm 90, we looked at it this morning, in verse 2. He said, this is the only psalm, by the way, we get from Moses. And he says, before the mountains were born, before you gave birth to the earth and the world, from eternity to eternity, you're God. Whichever way we look, all the way back in history, all the way forward in the future, everywhere on the timeline, God is there. And because he exists outside of time, he is fully aware of what has happened in your life and what will happen in your life. And that has major implications for how you walk through life. All right, we talked about this. We actually went through this psalm slowly back in January, if you wanted to go and and uh, look more into this, but I told you um, there's a, a few good books that I'll bring up during this series. One of them was by a woman named Jen Wilkin. She wrote a book called None Like Him, where she said that God has given time-bound humans, which means like we're going to die one day, right? Like we have a beginning and an end. God has given time-bound humans a longing for timelessness, a longing to be eternal. Now, why did God do that? Was it to torture us? No. No, so that we would learn to trust him in very personal ways. Because if you trust God with your past, listen to me, it doesn't have to define you anymore. You don't have to relive past hurts because you can find power to forgive in the one who has forgiven you. Living in the present hope of the gospel, that can heal you from past pain. Y'all, I got friends that are going through counseling right now, and you better believe at the core of their hope is that if they can, down in their heart, hand their past over to God, then what they're left with in the present is only what God says about them. And there's healing there. Their purpose gets determined by what God says instead of being determined by what someone did to them or said to them. And that's huge. Listen, when it comes to your past, you cannot just let it go, okay? You cannot frozen your way out of the pain of your past. All right, because if you let it go, your past is like a boomerang. And you let it go, and at some point or another, that thing's gonna come right back around and hit you right in the face. And some of y'all have experienced the pain of just thinking, I'll just let it go. You've bought into some pop psychologist, I'll just let it go, and then it comes back around, and it starts to hurt you in new and fresh ways and maybe the people around you. You can't let it go. You have to give it to someone who can actually heal you from it. And if you trust God with your future, you can be free from worry. For, this, for, for me, this means freedom from fear of what's to come. I've told you that one of the big things the Lord is doing in my life is kind of revealing to me how much of a glass half-empty guy I can be sometimes. I need to control all the variables because I'm certain that in the future it's all going to fall apart if I don't, right? And God says, chill out, Spence. Your whole life is just a tiny blip in eternity. So chill out. He's way more powerful than me. He has more experience than me, and he's going to be here a long time after me. That's just one thing I want you to see about God here at the beginning. Let's Keep going. The second observation about God gets to our next phrase. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. All right, you guys know who Stephen Hawking is? All right, Stephen Hawking is smart. All right, that's his credentials. Like, just smart, okay? He is considered by just about everybody to be the most intelligent theoretical physicist since Einstein. So in his recent commentary on the universe, he said our galaxy is about 6 trillion miles across. That's the Milky Way. And it sits there kind of looking, he said, like a pastry roll, right? Like kind of swirled like that. And we now know that he said that our galaxy is only one of some 100,000 million galaxies that can be seen using modern telescopes, each galaxy itself containing some 100,000 million stars. And each of these 100,000 million galaxies are about 3 million light years apart. And on top of all that, Hawking says, The universe is still expanding. It's getting bigger. And he says he doubts now that the Big Bang was how it all started because the beginning demands a more complex explanation than that. Y'all, when the Bible says God created the heavens and the earth, I need you to see he did not create small and simple, he created vast, endless skies and he created the complexity of the molecule and the atom. Our next truth is really simple God is creator. Moses' words here, they have great force. I want you to, we don't do this a lot, but put yourself into Moses' shoes when he's writing this, that Israel's wandering around in the wilderness. And every night he has the night sky to look up to, the Milky Way, the random comets that come through. No wonder he wrote Genesis, uh, Genesis chapter one like poetry. He was in awe that there was this omnipotent creator who put all this into motion just by speaking. And that same God, at the same time, powerful enough to do all that, cared enough to set his people free from slavery. And so Moses is worshiping in Genesis 1. Kent Hughes said it this way, Oh, how we need to rise above the congestion and smog of our existence every day and see our creator, our cosmic caregiver. Now, how does this connect to your purpose? our whole goal for this series. Well, listen to me. It means you have a purpose. That's the big thing here. God is not an accidental God. There are no mistakes. Isaiah 40 says, to whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal? Asks the Holy One. Look up and see. God's response, you want to compare me to somebody? Okay, first look up. And as soon as you look up, there's nobody you can compare him to. He brings out the stars by number. He calls them out by name, the gajillion, bajillion, gajillion stars. He knows all of them because of his great power and strength. Not one of them is missing. And if he's powerful enough to count all those stars, he says he created you and you and I are the crown jewel of his creation. He created us on purpose, Ephesians 2 says, for good, for good. Look, I know you may be in here. Some, some in here is pretty common in our church. You might be a skeptic or an atheist today. I hope you will consider what we're saying. I hope you'll investigate it and vet it. We're going to get into how God how God created the world when we walk through creation account more uh, next week, I believe. But I want you to consider God as creator because I know that can be a hang up. I want you to consider it in light of the next truth that we're going to see. Okay, I want to show you one that's been even more. All inspiring more important to me this week, this truth about God. Get this, if, now, we're gonna do something that could feel like a brain pretzel, all right? So lock in and think with me for a second in Genesis 1. If God existed before the beginning, then that means that while he is creator, he is not first creator. Creation was something that he eventually did you tracking? But he was something before he was a creator, and he was doing something before he was creating. So what was he doing? All right, you got to get ready for this. We find our answer at the climax of Jesus's high priestly prayer in John 17. He says, Father, Father, I want those you have given me, that you and I, to be with me where I am so that they will see my glory, which you have given me because you loved me when? Before the foundation of the world. Here is Jesus saying in eternity, before time, before the story began, God who he calls father was already loving him. Before God was a creator, God was a father. In fact, this is your next, just next attribute of God. I want you to write down. God is a father. He's a father. And if God is first a father, listen to me, that means everything he does, everything, including creating the world, he does in a fatherly way. When we see that God rules over creation as a kind and loving father that revolutionizes how we approach him and we're able to actually delight in his providence. If God, listen, if God's first identity is a creator, listen, he is a creator, but if that's his first identity, then that means he needs a creation to rule over in order to be who he is. And that creates all kinds of problems. God needs us. Seems like a pretty pitiful God. Not only that, if God's first identity is as this ruler over his creation, What kind of salvation does he offer me when I break his rules, which we all do? What what, what can he offer me if his main identity is ruler over creation? Well, the most he can do is let me off the hook. Another fantastic book that I'm reading and working through for this series is by Michael Reeves. It's called Delighting in the Trinity. And he said that this would mean if if God's first identity were just as creator and ruler, we would relate to God more like a divine traffic cop than anything else. So here's what happens. We, I get in a high-speed chase, and, and finally, you know, the officer pulls me over, and he comes over, and he says, okay, and let's say this happens. It never happens to me, but let's say the policeman lets you off the hook with a warning, right? You actually get off. Somehow you can t- tell me the secret sauce to that, but you get off, right? What is your response? Like, what's your emotion? Well, it's gratitude. And depending on what he lets you off for, that gratitude might be deep, but your affection will stop there. You will never love the traffic cop, which is ironic because the greatest commandment, greatest rule in scripture is love the Lord your God with everything you have. Now, why am I spending so much time here, y'all? Because I believe the reason a lot of Christians and a lot of other people are flirting with spirituality and religion, but then getting frustrated when they try to practice their faith is because they feel like they're trying to keep the traffic cop happy. And that's exhausting So you try and do enough good to outweigh the bad, but the whole time, you're really just hoping that the traffic cop doesn't throw you into eternal jail. But your purpose, what you're created for, is far greater than appeasing a divine traffic cop because God is far more than that. And so what happens is we miss out on what God has for us. Before he ever created, before he ever ruled the world, God was a father loving a son, And the scriptures start to use the term God and father interchangeably. Exodus, he calls Israel his firstborn son. Psalm 103, he says, as as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Isaiah 66, Isaiah looks up and says, God, you are our father. And then when Jesus teaches the disciples how to pray, the prayer they're supposed to pray every day, he doesn't look at them and say, okay, when you start to pray, pray this way. Our ruler who art in heaven. Our creator who art in heaven. Those things are true. But it's not how Jesus says we are to relate to God. He says, our what? Father. Father. Our father who art in heaven. And a good father, a good father, you know, this doesn't just want his kids to obey. He does. But he wants his kids to be joyful, to be so confident and certain of his love embedded into his commands that his commands are a delight to them. That they want to spend more time with the Father because they feel safe with him, he dotes on them, and they feel overwhelmingly loved by him. That's what makes the Christian God vastly unlike any other God. So, uh, 1 John 4 8, John says, God is love. His nature is loving because for all eternity he has been a loving Father, which, by the way, means that the son that he has been loving is also eternal. If you look at the first two verses, in the beginning of the third verse here in Genesis 1, I want to show you, if you'll look at it, I want to show you the Christian God. All right, if you look closely, what you're going to see is three persons in the singular Christian God. In the beginning, God, so if you were highlighting, underlining something, in the beginning, God, there you go, created the heavens and the earth. That's one person. And it says, now the earth was formless and empty, darkness covered the surface of the watery depths, we're coming back to that in just a moment, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters, Your second person, then God said, you to underline that one. Now, if you're counting, and you're like, well, I see two, but then what's the word said, how does that count? John 1 explains it for us. Those of you familiar with the Gospel of John know this. John 1, 1 through 3, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He. You get that? The word He. There's a pronoun ascribed to the word. It's not it. He was with God in the beginning, and all things were created through Him. And apart from Him, not one thing was created that has been created. The the He is Jesus. The Word was Jesus. And right in the opening verses, you see the Christian idea that we call the Trinity that one God exists in three persons. Let me say it this way today. We're gonna get into it a whole lot when we talk about being created in God's image at the end of Genesis 1. But here's what I want you to hear. God is, here's our blank, three persons, yet one essence. Which today, it just needs to be like, a little bit, okay? It's mind-blowing. I know it sounds crazy at the moment, but the fact that God is what we say triune, which means three persons unified, one God, will have massive implications for your life. Look, one of those is that God clearly didn't create us because he needed us. He didn't create us because he was lonely. He had the Son and the Spirit. He exists eternally in love. By the way, here's a preview to that sermon on the image of God. If he created us in his image, then our lives will never be complete until we are living in love and community with others. God created our lives to only work when we are in deep community with others. So if you look at your past or maybe your family's past, you might look at it and say, man, how different would those things would have been? Maybe I wouldn't have made those mistakes if I'd had community with others. Other people reminded me of who I am, and who God says I am. Listen, I know um, community groups that we have here are messy, but it's worth it because the alternative is Isolation. And isolation leads to destruction. But back into our, our, our passage, God wasn't lonely. He created us, listen, as an overflow of his love so that his love, which was spilling out in his relationship with the Son of the Spirit, his love might be enjoyed by others. His love with Jesus is the blueprint for his love with us. That's why Romans 8, 29, Paul says that Christ would be the firstborn among many who? Brothers and sisters, other children of God, that get to experience his love. God enjoys showering love on his son and God enjoys loving us through his son. Y'all, I desperately, desperately, this is the big truth that I want you to grab hold of today. You leave Mercy Church today, this is the one. God is a father. God is a father and he deeply loves you who he has called his child. That's his primary way of his, him talking about how he's relating to you. Not as his creation, you are, but more than that, his child. Now I know for some, God as father creates emotional connections that are to say the least unpleasant because your father or father figure wasn't good to you. And that, I can't say how sorry, how saddened I am by that. Words can't can't really describe that. It wasn't supposed to be that way. Let me give you this hope that that's you. God the father is not called father because he copies earthly fathers. He's not some pumped up version of your dad. It's the other way around. In fact, he is the one that all earthly fathers are supposed to reflect. And some dads do that better than others, but all dads ultimately fall short. So I plead with you, look behind the reflection of the heavenly father and see God himself In fact, it leads me to the last point for today. It's verse 2. I I had to read this verse a few times. I'm still working through this, honestly. I'm marveling at verse 2. I want you to look at it again. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. The Hebrew expression formless and empty is a common one that's used to basically communicate that it was uninhabitable all right which means it was the very opposite of what it would be in six after the six days of creation spread over this uninhabitable earth was darkness which then gets more emphasized with the with emptiness and under the emptiness and darkness was the deeps of the ocean why does god listen this is what the question i ask why is this verse in here why include this Why not start? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God said, let there be light, and there was light. Why do we have verse two? I think it's to foreshadow how he can work in each of our lives. The spirit of God is hovering over the water. The spirit, actually translated the breath of God, is hovering over the water, about to get to work. And then day one comes, and God starts to, he speaks his word, his son, starts to bring beauty, and order, and purpose out of darkness and emptiness. That's our God. Here's the last thing I want you to see about God today. God's a redeemer. He can see through darkness. He breaks through it with the light of life. That's what Jesus is. Paul talking in 2 Corinthians 4 says, for God said, let light. He's thinking back on creation. Let light shine out of darkness. That God who said that, He has shown in our hearts. See, Paul is taking that same God in creation, bringing it to us. He's shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory. Where? In the face of Jesus Christ. Just as the spirit of God hovered over the dark waters, so he hovers now over the dark hearts of humanity, preparing them for the word of God that will make them new creations in Christ. Jesus, the word. He re-enters a dark, sin-filled, chaotic world, and he brings life and light to it again. So this is what Jesus is doing in his life and ministry, right? He cures diseases. He makes the lame walk in the blind sea, brings beauty and order out of darkness and pain. He calms the storm, bringing order to creation where there was chaos. He brings the light of life to sin. He forgives adulterers and thieves. And when he does that, they are transformed they become new creations. Zacchaeus, the thief, becomes an incredibly generous person. What else does he do? He raises the dead, brings the dead back to life. But then at the end of his life, listen, Jesus himself is put into the darkness and chaos. Middle of the day, darkness fills the sky, and when he dies, the earth shakes. What's happening? Jesus, the word by which the world was created is thrown into the darkness and chaos created by our sin so that we could have light and life again. He allowed himself to be killed on the cross so that you and I could be recreated anew in his resurrection. Your purpose, what we're after in this series, y'all, it's knowing that God. Is your life being destroyed by your sin right now? Listen, that's not just a preacher question. I know you come in here today, nobody else might know about it. And you might've been hiding it for weeks, months, years, and you're getting pretty good at it. But that's the way sin works. The sin is a spiral, right? It gets harder and harder to hold on to, and eats at you more and more until it starts to destroy your life. And you know, if it ever gets out, the destruction is gonna be worse and worse. Maybe that's you right now. Maybe your family's unraveling because of your sin. Maybe your addiction is raging again. Maybe the darkness is taking over in one way or another. But if you turn to this God, By faith in Christ. And when we say by faith in Christ, I mean by faith in the one that died for your sins. He can make you a new creation. That's what he does. That's what he loves to do. And he loves you as his child. And he calls you to come home and let him recreate you. And what he starts to do is he takes the word, Christ, the word that we rejected, and he begins to fill you with it again. And that change might take time, but it will happen. Listen, here's how I'll close. Genesis is here to introduce you to God. He's the reason you're created. Do you know this God? Let let me pray for you. Let me lead you in a just brief response let you consider this. So would you pray with me? Bow your head, close your eyes. Do you know this God? That's That's the question. The offer to you today is that if you have run from this God, you can come back home to him. He loves you as a good father, a better father than we can ever even imagine. He loves you. And he wants you to know that love. You can have it. You, all you have to do, you don't have to clean yourself up. You could never do that enough. This is not a divine traffic cop. You need to do enough good to outweigh the bad. No. You just have to turn to him. Believe that he sent Christ to pay for your sin. It's how much he loves you. He sent his own son for you. And your profession is simply there to God. Maybe it's the first time you've prayed in 10 years. Maybe you've never prayed to God before. And it's praying simply this, God, I believe that Jesus died for my sins. Today, I'm believing that. I believe you love me. I believe you're eternal. I believe you're the creator. And I believe now you are a redeemer. And I'm grabbing hold of that and I'm turning away from that sin and I give you my life. Thank you, God, for saving me. And he promises he will keep you with him now and forevermore. I want you to worship him. Christian, your prayer might be different. You might need to return to that our father who is in heaven. You need to finally repent. It starts with him and then it's going to be some others you're going to have to bring into it. God, I I see that you're a redeemer and so I know my sin where I've been running away from you, running away from the purpose you created me for begins with knowing you, begins with surrendering to you, obeying you, and I've been running from that, and today I release that. I'm coming back home, and you need to hear God loves you. You need to sense the Spirit of God wrapping His arms around you, saying, welcome home, child, daughter, son, welcome home. God, oh God, there is no way I can do justice to who you are, to put words to you always falls short so we beg that your spirit would help us to know this wonderful eternal creative all powerful all loving all knowing God who says that he is a father and a redeemer oh God help us to know you a little bit more pray that in Christ's name